Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today on the show, we explore sub-Saharan Africa with a guest who is uniquely positioned to offer perspective on the continent from the continent. Herman Warren is Africa Director for the Economist Corporate Network and is based in Johannesburg. If you are an emerging markets investor or just happen to be interested in Africa, you'll find the content fascinating. Of course, I'm biased. As some of you may know, I was born and raised in South Africa, so I really appreciated hearing Herman's perspective. There's been a lot in the news lately about the South Africa coronavirus variant and vaccines. Herman discusses the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the region, particularly on South Africa. We also discuss whether a new commodities supercycle is looming and what this could mean for the commodity producing economies. We wrap up with what Africa can expect from the Biden administration. Some exciting news before we start. The Take 15 podcast now has its own YouTube channel, so be sure to check it out and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our latest short-form interviews. We've also added show notes to the episode. And now, on with the show. Please enjoy my conversation with Herman Warren. Herman Warren, welcome to the show. Lauren, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to have you today because it's a first. I think you're our first guest ever joining from South Africa. Ah. So it's great to have you on the show. Excellent. Um, so I couldn't help noticing actually in your background that we have almost mirror image lives. So I grew up in South Africa. I then lived for a long time in New York and now I'm in Virginia. And I think yours is almost the opposite where you grew up on Long Island. You went to college in Virginia. And now you're in South Africa. That's right. So maybe we can start there. Um, how did you end up in South Africa? Sure. So uh, actually, I attended Howard University in Washington, D.C., but, you know, it's kind of that that area, which is the, the, the tri, it's not even state, but you, you, get, you get a set, Maryland, D.C., Virginia. Yeah. And growing up, my dad was an entrepreneur. He always kind of encouraged us to pursue an entrepreneurial line. That bug has bitten me. Um, and uh, as I was thinking about options, I majored in finance um, at, at Howard. Uh, and as I was thinking about options for what I wanted to do after I graduated, I learned about management consulting. And I had never heard about it before, I think, my junior year at Howard. And, and, and when I did learn about it, I said, wow, this is actually excellent because it gives one an opportunity to learn about business from a number of different perspectives, and you're working with large corporates, their senior leadership teams on their most pressing matters. Um, and uh, I interviewed, uh, was uh, by Bain, uh, was offered a job, and um, and uh, and after I graduated, I basically ended up in Boston working at the head office. And at the time, and this was many, many, uh, many decades ago, well, some decades ago, I suspect it's similar now, but at the time, Bain encouraged employees to visit other offices. Um, and um, I attended a brown bag lunch with one of my colleagues, and she outlined this amazing experience she had in Australia and in South Africa. And I said, well, I'd, I'd love to experience something similar. So I applied. Um, my request was granted, and I headed off from Boston in March of 1996 
expecting to spend three months in Australia and three months in South Africa. I ended up spending about a week in, in Australia because some business had been sold and they were short of hands on deck in South Africa. Came to South Africa expecting to spend four months there, three, four months, then go back to Australia. And 25 years later, I'm still here. No longer with Bain, but that's sort of how I, I ended up in, 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 in South Africa. Wow, well, that's amazing. So your adopted homeland, uh, unfortunately, has been in the news quite a lot mm -hmm. uh, lately, mm -hmm. and not always for the best reasons. So there's a lot of press coverage about the, the variant, the coronavirus variant from South Africa. Yep. So you're on the ground in Johannesburg. Um, give listeners uh, some sort of insight into how the pandemic is being handled in South Africa and maybe perhaps a bit more broadly on the continent. Sure. Um, no, no worries there. So I work for The Economist, as, as, you, as you introduced, um, and we have been covering uh, this virus, which turned into a pandemic, for quite some time, um, even before it was actually named, because when it, when it broke out, it was just this weird disease. It was suspected of being a coronavirus, um, and eventually it was sequenced and labeled COVID-19. <clears throat> um, and we know that it, uh, it's a once in a century pandemic and it's had a tremendous impact in so many ways, among them uh, economic, socially, and so on. What we've seen in Africa generally is that, and I'll come to South Africa specifically in a moment, uh, is that leaders in the region took a very sober and pragmatic and proactive approach to trying to get ahead of the virus, so-called you know, flattening the curve. Uh, so we saw lockdowns, for example, in Uganda or restrictions on gatherings before the first case was even confirmed. And in South Africa, where I am, um, a hard lockdown was instituted in late March uh, and South Africa is a country of around 60 million people, similar size in terms of population to the UK, but the lockdown happened in South Africa week before, weeks before what we saw in the, in the United Kingdom. And I think for some good reasons. So one, leaders here have more experience dealing with infectious diseases um, because the kinds of things that, that they have to contend with are not necessarily what you find in Europe or, or North America, certainly not to the same extent. Um, two, I think just a, a kind of a, a soberness about what the impact of this virus could have on their societies, looking at how it was unfolding, particularly at that time in Italy, which kind of Wuhan and Hubei, it, it moved from there being like the crisis point to, to Italy, where it was just ravaging um, that, that country. And in a number of African countries, you, you just don't have the healthcare infrastructure that you'd find um, in, in those places. So you might find in a, in a large metropolitan area in the United States that a hospital there has more ICU beds than exist in a whole country in, in Africa. So, and that's not even getting into uh, PPEs and ventilators and other non-pharmaceutical interventions and living conditions which aren't necessarily um, conducive for, for social distancing. But to try to get ahead of that, that was, was instituted in a number of countries um, around, around the region, and South Africa being, being one of them. In terms of the impact that it's had, economically, devastating. And, 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 and Africa doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. So the world economy last year contracted around 4%. 
Um, and it probably won't retrace that lost economic ground for at least another year and a half, possibly two years. In South Africa, the economy, and well, before I get to South Africa, the region of Africa contracted around 4%. South Africa's economy, the numbers are still coming in, but I think when all is said and done and tallied, the economy would have contracted 7% last year uh, and raised an already eye-watering uh, rate of unemployment and so on to even, to even higher levels. Um, and with much of the forecasting that was done last year, with, with each kind of update, it just looked gloomier and gloomier. Um, you know, uh, we started out the year, we as the economists, the Economist Intelligence Unit, thinking that the global economy was going to grow well north of 2%. Uh, as the pandemic started to bite, I think our worst, our worst forecast in the middle of the year was somewhere around 5.3-5.4% contraction. Um, fortunately, it got better as we went as we went through the year. But in South Africa, we entered into the kind of the storm, if you will, with an economy that was already sputtering, right? Technically in a recession, so it was like a, a, a double whammy, a, a significant body blow to the to the liver. Um, so it has it has been it has been quite quite tough, um, but but I, I think the government has handled a number of the pandemic-related um, fallouts, thinking about protecting lives and livelihoods extremely well. What we see in South Africa that you also will see in other emerging markets is emerging market countries don't have the same firepower to leverage fiscal policy, monetary policy to push against the tide of COVID. So South Africa was progressive in that regard, but because it went into the, the pandemic again, weak economically and then also fiscally not in the best position, it, it, it didn't have the ability to throw money literally at, um, at, at the problem. So we're not uh, certainly not out of the woods, uh, unlike the global economy, which I cited just now would uh, would probably retrace its economic ground in the next year and a half or two. Uh, South Africa is probably not going to return to 2019 levels of GDP, at least until 2023, possibly into 2024. So a lot longer of a of a lost of a lost um, a lost period. Um, so let me let me let me pause. Let me pause there. Okay, so the lockdown in South Africa was, uh, I think, among the strictest that I had read about, uh, maybe maybe the strictest, um, and in some ways a little bit of a social experiment because they're actually, if I remember correctly, banned sales of liquor and kind of, kind of back and forth. So I'm curious about the sort of the impact that that had on uh, crime in South Africa, but also the, how the uh, lockdown impacted tourism in South Africa. Yeah, well, uh, on the, the latter is is, is quite uh, quite straightforward. Tour, tourism got smashed, and and that's what we're seeing, not just in South Africa but globally. So so tourism in South Africa represents around eight percent of of GDP, but airports were closed. Um, you weren't allowed um, in, in the early days at all. I don't think if unless you were a essential worker, you couldn't stay in a hotel if they if they were open. Many of them had shuttered because it just wasn't economically viable for them to. To, to stay to stay open. So tourism has yet to recover. And the domestic um, market, if you will, is not sufficient to carry the whole industry. So there has been uh, significant carnage um, in that um, in that particular 
arena. And again, I don't think we're going to see that return anything uh, close to, to, to normal levels until we smash this virus. Uh, and fortunately, in that regard, I think South Africa off the blocks pretty slow is demonstrating some real progress. Um, some vaccines have already landed. Uh, there have been jabs done. It's obviously going to happen in the phased approaches we're seeing in other areas, frontline workers and so on, uh, healthcare workers and so on, getting the jabs first. As far as um, the lockdown restrictions, and certainly earlier, they were draconian. Uh, and to your point, uh, you couldn't buy cigarettes. It was it was it was uh, legal to to consume them. You just couldn't buy them. Um, and the same with alcohol. Uh, it was legal to consume it, but it was it was completely not allowed to be to be sold. And uh, let me just extend um, some of the the restrictions. You couldn't you couldn't visit a McDonald's or, or any other quick service restaurant. There were restrictions on what you could buy from certain stores, for example. Um, and I, I think that the government, um, on some of those uh, product lines, had very good reasoning. Um, they wanted to make sure that um, issues such as um, uh, casualty wards were not also having to carry the burden of people who um, may have been drinking, drinking and driving and crashing and, and so on and so on and so forth. Uh, however, I, I am not convinced that the drinking was any less than it was. I think that there were a significant number of people who just found other channels for their smokes uh, and for their, their favorite tipple. Um, fortunately, as 2020 progressed, um, these things were relaxed and the trading environment was opened, even if it was somewhat more restrictive than what it had been under, uh, under a normal dispensation. So you could buy alcohol uh, between certain hours uh, and, and on certain days. But, but, but I think in, in hindsight, the government realized that not only were they, were they losing revenue, excise taxes and so on, but they were just opening up a black market which uh, would be very unlikely to recede back to its pre-lockdown kind of boundaries. Um, on crime, uh, surprising, I won't say surprisingly, um, because we had curfews as well, which we didn't talk about. You know, was, particularly particularly in the early part of the lockdowns, you were only allowed to leave work if you had to to go to go to work or to go to a doctor or or you had to buy food. Um, if you could work from home, you were encouraged to do so. Notwithstanding, um, you know, there was there was I can't remember the exact hours of the curfew, but it was probably something like six to six p.m. to six a.m. Right. Um, so that limited movement um, and crime stats actually came down. What, what we saw here, similar to what we've seen in other environments, though, is that unfortunately issues of gender based violence uh, flared up and, and, and so on and so forth. But but generally speaking, uh, the crime situation um, potentially improved, but was certainly no no worse than it was um, pre pre covid. Well, that's good news, and I hope it continues to last. Um, yeah. I'd love to spend a bit of time now on your work as uh, Africa Director at The Economist. Mm -hmm. And before we do that, I just want to remind listeners that Africa is the world's second largest and second most populous continent after Asia. And it's enormous, mm. right? It, it comprises 54 countries. So tell us a bit about your role as Africa Director. Yeah, uh, and you're right. I mean, and, and I just add, there's, there's about 1.2 billion people who live, who live in the region. Fortunately, 
Um, if there's a silver lining in what you described, um, my remit is Africa, but it's sub-Saharan Africa, so I only have to cover 47 countries. Um, <laughs> but I, I work for The Economist, and most people know of The Economist through the weekly publication. But the group has a number of other moving parts, and indeed, as part of that, other publications. But I work in the division called The Economist Intelligence Unit, does political, economic, and industry forecasting, among, among others. I'm a very public-facing uh, part of the business. I generally work with senior leaders from large corporates who are doing business in South Africa and the wider region. I create a platform for them to get together, to exchange perspectives uh, between one another, also sharing insights that, that the way we see the world, the way we see things developing in country, in region, and so on. Uh, and because of the convening power of the brand, I'm also able to invite in other thought leaders, whether they be from the public sector or senior leaders, um, from the public sector or the private sector, to have conversations that matter. I like to think of what I do um, as helping uh, our clients to raise their gaze, you know, with the, the, the telescope as well as the microscope, because you also have to be careful with your next step. You can't just be focused on the horizon. Um, but seeing the horizon and perhaps beyond, beyond the obvious and being able to connect dots better to make more effective and relevant commercial decisions. So that's, that's effectively um, what, I, what, what I do for The Economist. And again, my remit is Sub-Saharan Africa. I have colleagues uh, in, in similar roles who, who uh, look after the Middle East out of Dubai, have colleagues based in Singapore who look after Southeast Asia, uh, in mainland China, have colleagues in Japan and, and so on. But my remit is, is this very um, large and diverse region known as, known as Africa. So let's spend a bit of time on this raising the gaze part because I, a lot of our listeners or some of our listeners will be emerging market investors mm -hmm. and very keen to understand uh, your perspective sitting on the continent and those 47 countries that, that you are covering. Mm -hmm. What are some of the big stories uh, and the trends that you are following at the moment? Right. Okay. So like the global economy is expected to rebound this year. Africa is also expected to emerge from the first recession it's had in 25 years, which was last year, into positive growth territory. However, it will be relatively weak. So we're forecasting that the economy is going to grow 1.6%. Now, growth is better than, than not having it. Um, uh, so, so I don't want to uh, look a, a gift, gift horse in the mouth. And Although there are 47 countries in the region, there are a few economies that loom large, you know, kind of disproportionately make up the, the, the economic mix. The two largest, Nigeria and South Africa, where I am, are going to perform quite pedestrianly. Uh, we're forecasting the Nigerian economy to grow 1.1% this year. We're forecasting, interestingly enough, South Africa to grow uh, 1.8, so faster than the regional average, silver lining. Um, but Africa, as I've mentioned, doesn't exist in a vacuum, just like COVID rolled onto African shores because we live in a very integrated global economy. Um, it's impacted by developments elsewhere. So what I suppose is, are, are you know, some positive points um, that um, uh, allow me to see a silver lining is, 
the EU is the largest trading bloc with the region. It's an important region from a trade and investment perspective, and the EU is going to grow pretty much in line with that top line um, GDP figure that I quoted earlier. Um, so the EU, as you know, would compose many nations, but as a block, it is, I think it's 27, uh, that may or may not include the UK right now, but between 25 and 30, and 30 nations, and there's a strong rebound which is happening and expected to continue in Europe, positive for, for Africa. So in, in, in South Africa, a lot of the cars that are manufactured not far from where I'm sitting, the key export market for them are the UK and other parts of, of Europe. For agricultural producers in the Western Cape, where I know you've had some experience, the city is fruits and wine, um, a large part of those exports go to Europe. So to the extent that we have positive economic and buoyant growth, relatively speaking, in Europe, that's good for South Africa and more widely for the region. The largest um, partner, uh, bilateral trading partner, however, is China. Now, China is second largest economy, it was ironically, um, the, no, maybe that's not really the point I'll make after this point may, may, may be ironic to some. Um, it was the, the place where, where the virus was first uh, 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 it identified and, and where it kind of the pandemics was, was, uh, was hatched, so to speak. Um, but that economy grew last year. It was the only large economy that grew. 2%, yes, well off of what the Chinese would have hoped for, and many uh, many Chinese have, have come to expect um, in the most recent period. Um, but it grew last year, and it's expected to grow 8.5% this year. So that's also good for Africa, given those trade trade relations uh, and so on, and particularly as it, re as it relates to commodities, which have been extremely buoyant. So if we look at um, industrial metals, copper, uh, iron ore, we look at gold, safe haven assets, um, and so on. Those have actually, uh, uh, by and large, uh, hardened. Um, I mean, we did have a bit of dip here and there, and it depends on, on which nation we're talking about, which commodity looms larger. So if you're talking about uh, South Africa, an iron ore would be important, or coal. If you're talking about Zambia, it would be copper. If you talk about Nigeria, it would be oil, and so on. And oil, as we know, uh, uh, this has been this has been a period of un, of unprecedented developments. Went into negative territory that uh, that the WTI oil, um, but it's come back. Um, so so that's quite positive as well for Africa. And we've seen most recently in the South African context where, just a few months ago, the finance minister was forecasting a very large hole in tax collections. Um, and and some, some 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 really hard choices, harder choices that would have to be made. But just just yesterday, the finance minister tabled a budget, and things were not as bad as was expected just in October because of this more buoyant economic environment generally, um, harder commodity prices, um, a resilient consumer, and so on. So not not out of the deep water, um, but certainly um, certainly some things that that point to light at the end of the tunnel. And then just my last point, I suppose one of the big issues that's being focused on here, is defeating the virus. You referenced the variant um, that's, that, that was first actually identified in South Africa. It exists in a number of countries, but South Africa has been quite progressive with, with um, in its scientific community. There were a number of trials which have been run here, AstraZeneca being, being one, Johnson & Johnson at Pfizer ran their trials here, and it was sequenced here. And actually the variant is called 501YVV. 
the the two. Um, and it just speaks to this, um, I guess, the point that the big challenges facing humanity don't care about nationality, right? So if you talk about climate change, you know what? If you reduce your carbon footprint and everyone else does, that doesn't mean that the, the, the harder rainfall is going to avoid you or the, or the hotter temperatures and so on. It takes collective action. And, and the, the, this pandemic is a classic case of that. So if, if one finds herself in one of the richer nations, say the United States or the UK, or Israel's been very progressive, Australia, you're likely to get your jab um, uh, latest by the middle of next year. So you'll have kind of herd immunity through vaccinations, mass inoculations uh, by the middle of, middle of next year. Uh, if you find yourself in some of these emerging market countries, it may take until uh, 2024. The problem is, going back to this variant, 501YV2, is that if you give the virus an opportunity to figure out ways to change, it will seize those opportunities. And the risk is that the current vaccines, which are deemed to be effective, are less so. And if anyone is infected, then everyone is at risk. So we're watching that very carefully. I think it's quite encouraging what we're seeing with G7 nations coming to the party with the World Health Organization. Um, there's a different tone and, 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 um, and tenor uh, emanating out of the White House, which I think is adopting an America first policy, but one which understands that America first has to be embraced through multilateralism, um, through institutionalism. So a, 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 a commitment being placed to things uh, like, like uh, the Paris Climate Accords, the World Health Organization. Um, and there's a lot of talk now around uh, richer nations, many of whom have secured vaccines um, uh, doses significantly higher than their populations, just north of you in Canada. I think they have enough vaccines um, secured to, to, to inoculate their population five times over. But to have those nations start, um, um, uh, I guess, sharing uh, their vaccines, and at the end of the day, everyone, everyone will win. So, so we're certainly looking at that and hoping that these initial kind of um, estimates uh, about when mass global uh, humanity uh, inoculations will, will happen, vaccinations to, to rid, the, 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 the rid us of this pandemic will be compressed rather than, rather than extended uh, in line with those, those initial estimates. Okay. So you mentioned the White House a few moments ago, and I definitely want to get there uh, in a minute or two. Mm -hmm. Before we go there, um, I was just scrolling through my phone before we started, and there are so many headlines uh, you know, about the new commodities super cycle that is looming. Mm -hmm. um, do you think the reality will, will match the expectation from where you're sitting? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's on the one hand and on the other scenario. So what, what certainly is, is taking, taking hold, it seems to be an upswing in economic activity. So for things like oil, that suggests that um, prices will increase. Will they go back to $120 plus dollars a barrel that we saw seven years ago? I wouldn't be willing to put my head on the block for that. But I, but I think prices are likely to firm over the medium to near term. We also have an undeniable pivot to kind of um, uh, green energy, renewable, green economy, renewable energy, and so on. 
And that requires a number of commodities. Copper, for example, I mentioned that earlier in the context of Zambia. Um, it requires cobalt, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I think that commodity prices are likely to be on a, a I know we're, we're not always dealing with, with an audience that understands cricket, but, but a stickier wicket uh, in a positive sense uh, or firmer ground um, than, than one would have assumed uh, certainly around this time last year. Okay. So in terms of the White House, obviously we have, we have a new president, President Biden, new administration. Mm -hmm. What do you think um, Africa, or certainly sub-Saharan Africa, you know, the areas that you're covering, can expect from a Biden administration? Uh, I would expect, um, well, let me, go, let me go back to a point that I made earlier. Biden is, is a very different politician from, the, from Donald, Donald Trump. Um, he also has an America first approach, but a very different way of executing it. And, and one, again, that I think respects institutions, the power of multilateralism, uh, and so on. So Africa will have uh, a seat at, at, at the table at the, at the, and at the very least will be on the radar. So I think that a, a Biden administration will, will, will understand quite clearly that um, having 60 to 70 percent of the American population does not make America safe. Um, Africans have to be part of that mix. South Americans have to be part of that mix because that will secure, secure um, America's America's future. Uh, I think what we're not likely to see any difference in, and the one area where there is complete agreement, whether one is on uh, the Democratic or the Republican side of the aisle, is that China is a, is a strategic competitor. So I think this tension that we've seen between the US and China will remain. And a lot of it, although what makes the headlines are uh, tariffs on, on, on goods and so on and so forth. Not, and I wouldn't expect um, Biden to necessarily remove, remove any of those, but a lot of it is around technology, um, critical network infrastructure, uh, microprocessors, uh, artificial intelligence, and so on. Uh, that is likely to be a mainstay. And America will push its particular position, uh, I suspect, in a much more... Um, multilateral way, trying to trying to rally allies around its cause. And China will also push its particular um, objectives through things like its Belt Road Initiative, um, its vaccine diplomacy, and so on and so forth. So Africa's in a very interesting place. It's literally kind of in in the middle of this 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 Western and Eastern kind of kind of tussle. And it creates both opportunities and and risks, but I think probably more more opportunities than not. Um, and, and then the last point I'd make, I suppose, uh, going back to um, Biden, Biden is a, a friend of, 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 of Africa generally and South Africa in particular. Um, Joe Biden went to go see Nelson Mandela on Robben Island um, uh, back, in, back in the 80s. Um, so I, I think that um, certainly for South Africa, that has to be a, a, a positive point of connection. I like that term you use, vaccine diplomacy. It's the first time I've, I think I've actually heard it, but it's, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch over the coming, I guess, year or two to see how it plays out on the international stage. Um, and just a quick note to our listeners, uh, the incoming 
Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs hasn't yet been confirmed um, as our conversation today, but Bob Godek, who uh, was recently the U.S. Ambassador to Kenya, is the Acting Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of African Affairs. So uh, hopefully in a few weeks or, or so we'll know who the if he's being confirmed or not. So we have a couple minutes left and we're going to wrap up with my usual uh, questions that I ask all our, our guests. Okay. Um, and the first one, um, well, being in South Africa, you know uh, Trevor Noah and uh, I actually got the idea from Trevor Noah about a year ago. He as the sort of pandemic was starting, he had this little segment at the end of his show that he called the ray of sunshine. Okay. And that gave me this idea to ask guests, uh, let's try and end on something positive. So what's one long lasting, I guess, positive change that you hope to see as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, what the pandemic has shown to me is that it's exposed your strengths, the proverbial your strengths and your weaknesses. So if we look at it in a, in a corporate context, uh, was your strategy sound or not? Now, some, some of it was just the luck of the draw. If you happen to run a cruise, a cruise line business or a hotel or an airline, you know, you, you, were, you were in trouble. But if you had been sitting on the fence around digitizing or digitalization, um, uh, using more innovative channels, um, so on and so forth, then you were exposed. So, so for those who were doing the right things, it confirmed it and maybe even expedited the implementation. When it comes to society, and we've seen this around the world, even in the United States where you're sitting, where the victims of, uh, who succumbed to the virus are disproportionately marginalized communities by and large. Um, and, and for me, what it's shown is that good governance matters. Uh, equitable systems matter because we're all in this together, quite literally. Um, we, you know, uh, similar, similar case, I guess, on a, on a, on a macro level that, that, that you can make on a micro level. If Africa's ravaged by COVID-19 into 2023, let's not assume because I'm sitting in Paris that I'm fine. You know, the movement of people and capital is such that it will it will hit you. You're not safe unless everyone is safe. And and hopefully for me, the kind of social change movements that we've seen emerge will translate into policy changes, uh, resource allocation to, uh, to 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 close to close some of these gaps. I think the the off quoted is the the the. Uh, the, the arc of the, the, moral, the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I'm hoping that that kink is a bit sharper and a bit more pointed towards, towards justice as, as, the, as, the result, as the result of this. Absolutely. Second question is what I call the NASA question, and it's a little bit more fun. Yeah. Uh, you're about to go on a, a long duration space flight. You can take one thing with you. Mm -hmm. What do you take? Huh, that is a good one. Um, I would take um, uh, a, a Miles Davis uh, uh, CD. Uh, I never get tired of listening to Miles Davis, so probably uh, kind of kind of blue, uh, a track that was done, uh, uh, an album that was done decades ago, but it's it's fantastic, fantastic listening. 
That sounds great. And I actually haven't heard someone talk about a CD in a very long time, so hopefully it'll be something more. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> hopefully have CD players on the, on the spaceship. Yeah, that's true. Well, maybe a, a Miles Davis album in whatever is the appropriate format that, that will play, uh, right. play in, 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 uh, on, the, on, the space, on the space vessel. Okay. And then the closing question, when we're talking about flight, so this is um, what I call the, it's the superpower question. You get to pick either flight or invisibility, and whichever you pick, you're the only one in the world who has that superpower. What do you do with it? Which do you pick? Hmm. I'd probably pick invisibility. Um, in part, even though I'm, I'm on this podcast with you, I like my anonymity. Um, and I think that there's a lot to be gained just by observing. Things as they are, not as they may be distorted by your presence. And if you're invisible, I guess the one thing that it would force you to do, unless you wanted to scare the jabezus or whatever the right word is out of someone, is to be quiet. Um, and that would allow one to observe um, and, and hopefully to learn. Well, that is a great note on which to end our conversation. I've really enjoyed having you on the show today, Herman. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so on our YouTube channel or wherever you listen to the show. That way, you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate a rating and review. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. And a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.